Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. The retreat was focused on loving kindness or unconditional friendliness. And it was all about how to actually care for yourself and treat yourself like a friend. And that to me was what completely hooked me into meditation. It was that particular set of practices that was so incredibly earth shattering to feel for the first time like, oh, maybe I could like myself. There's a possibility that I could move towards liking myself. And that was when I was like, I can do this meditation thing. I can stick with this. It has value. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Loblassingame and I am your host. Today, we have my friend Elizabeth Sokolov. Elizabeth is a licensed marriage and family therapist, a member of Psy-Chi, the International Honor Society of Psychology, and the founder of One Mind Therapy. Elizabeth's journey started 11 years ago when she got into recovery from addiction after entering treatment. Like so many, she used drugs as a means to deal with her anxiety. She made it to one year sober and was still struggling with shame and self-compassion. All that changed when she discovered meditation. It became the cure to the anxious thoughts swirling in her mind. When she realized the power and freedom that meditation provided, she felt compelled to teach others the skills that had saved her life. She started by leading meditation groups at treatment centers for people who were struggling with addiction. She furthered her practice through silent retreats treats, loving kindness practices, and began to work to become a mindfulness meditation teacher. Elizabeth has helped so many people struggling with addiction through her meditation teaching and therapy work. Now, as a mother of two, she's had to find ways to make meditation work in an environment that includes less and less dedicated time to her practice. She applies those lessons to the busy lives that we all lead. It was so great to talk to Elizabeth and to better understand how to incorporate meditation when life wants to interrupt it. Elizabeth offers a really interesting perspective when it comes to recovery because she was such a skeptic of much of it until she dove in head first. And like many of us, she needed relief. And so she became willing to try new things, which led to her beloved meditation practice. It's clear to me, having related to her using and her journey so much, that meditation is another amazing coping skill that can be a vital part of our recovery toolbox. I intend to use more of it. You should as well. But you will know that after listening to the episode. So without further ado, I give you Elizabeth Sokoloff. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited and nervous. Well, I'll go really easy. It'll be really just straight conversational and you'll just tell me all your deepest, darkest secrets. Cool. Sounds like a brace. Yeah. I mean, no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
So full disclosure, you used to work at Lion Rock as a therapist and you are an incredible therapist and we hate that you left, but glad that things are going well and wanted to talk to you about your recovery and and the trajectory of your life. So will you give us your sobriety date? Yes. And thank you for that lovely introduction. My sobriety date is June 2nd, 2011. Wow. How's that feel? Honestly, a bit unreal. Like I I feel so far away from who I was at 11 years ago that sometimes it does feel a bit surreal. I'm glad you brought that up because I have that experience as well where I feel so far away from the person that I'll be describing sometimes. Does that ever creep into your mind in terms of like, well, maybe that's not who I am anymore and it wouldn't be like that anymore? It creeps into my mind, not as like... I wouldn't be like that anymore, but not who I am. I do agree with. I don't think that's who I am. I was 18 when I got sober too. So like, it's not who I am. I was a kid. And so just aside from the, from the drugs and alcohol, it's really just not who I am in that I grew up too. And the way that I think about it, because it doesn't creep in as like, oh, well, maybe that's not who I am. I should drink again is I just cannot see anything that alcohol would add to my life. And so I see no reason to want to drink. Like if it's not going to add some value to my life, why would I waste any time doing it? I have such a limited time as it is. <laughs> so all it's going to do is steal time and make me feel crappy the next day. I, I think I'm good. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you, what did your, give me a little bit about like what it looked like growing up. Where did you grow up? What did it look like at home for you? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And I do just want to say like from the get-go, because I sometimes tell this story and again, it feels very far away from who I am. There's so much privilege in it. And I grew up in New York City in like a very privileged bubble. And I think many of my experiences would not have unfolded how they did had that not been the case. But grew up in New York City with everything at my fingertips. And I think like a lot of kids who grow up in big cities grew up really quickly and looking at older kids and thinking the cool thing to do, the thing that you do is party and go to clubs and get drunk and get high. And like that is what life is all about. And not just kids, like adults too. That's what parents were into too. And my parents definitely liked to party and my dad particularly. So it was totally an image of what I grew up with as like the norm culturally. And by the time I was like in middle school, I was like, cool. Like, can we get drunk yet? Like, is it, are we, you know, like high school's right around the corner? Is it time to start partying and doing what the cool kids do? So pretty much as soon as I could get my hands on some alcohol, I, that's what I did. Do you think that you started drinking just to be cool? Do you think that there was some, like something at home that was related to it when you've looked at like family of origin stuff? Was it just things were totally fine and then, and then you wanted to drink? No. Yeah. And great question and great context too. I really... I think that being in that bubble, and I think this is relatable for most people, such a deep sense of inadequacy and never being enough and like a really hyper competitive environment as well. Certainly always comparing whether, you know, not explicitly, but definitely implicitly how much money people had and the things that they were able to do. And it was all about, you know, what school you were going to go to. I was thinking about what college I was going to get into when I was 
in elementary school. And so this really hyper-competitive environment, not feeling like enough. And if I had to put a word to it, it would be a a deep sense of inadequacy. And that became, I think, as I got older, self-hatred too. Did you feel the inadequacy because you couldn't do what other people were doing? Or was it like that no one was ever enough? Like, could anyone, do you think anyone ever felt that they were enough in that bubble? No, I think it was, yeah, I don't think it was entirely personal. I think it was like no one in that bubble felt like enough. Even the billionaires, right, were like dealing with their struggles. Yeah, it wasn't about like, oh, I don't have enough money to do that thing. It was really just like no one is ever enough. Like there is nothing that you can do to be good enough or perfect enough for this. Right. And uh, it's funny when, when I have family in New York City and my dad grew up in New York City and it's funny when I've gone, I didn't grow up there, but when I've gone there, I grew up in Silicon Valley, which is a different type of that. But when I've gone to New York and I'm around that culture, it is wild to me how palpable it is without even being a part of it. Like just stepping into the bubble for a moment <laughs> and you're like, I didn't even care about... Like I'm, I can't even go to that school. I don't live here. But suddenly I don't feel good enough just because I didn't. It is palpable, the competitiveness, the intensity, all of that. So I... And that's just like visiting that bubble. I can't imagine how intense that was living in it. Absolutely. And it's so true, right? Like even if you don't want to buy into it, I think even as a little kid, I was a little bit like, this is crazy. Why are we all buying into this? You can't not. Like it's just so present in your everyday life. But all of a sudden you do care about having designer shit when you're 12 years old. Right, right. So you start drinking and was that graceful? Oh, obviously. Everyone's first time drinking is just a beautiful experience, right? <laughs> um, no, not at all. Some random dude threw a bottle of vodka out of his window to me and my friend because we wanted some alcohol and we had nowhere to go drink it because we were 13. And we didn't know like what you drank alcohol with. And so we got grape juice and M&Ms to chase it with. Not a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. No, it tasted terrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Maybe a bad idea. <laughs> it was horrible. And we sat like in the median on a park bench in the middle of the street on Broadway and drank uh, a bottle of vodka between the two of us. We didn't know how much alcohol it took to get you drunk either. So we drank the whole thing with all the grape juice and the M&Ms. And uh, we got home to my mom's apartment and she was out for the night. Also a common occurrence. She's doing her own thing. My parents were divorced by that point. And my friend just like vomited grape juice and M&Ms all over my white red bedspread. I was waiting for you to say, and that's how I got diabetes. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) Sugar, grape juice, and vodka. And of course, like I wasn't savvy enough to clean it up. I was like, well, that's just going to stay there until my mom cleans it. Horrible privilege. So, okay. So you start drinking, you're throwing up. That's middle school. Can you like walk me through what the progression of the disease was, right? Because you got sober at 18. I got sober at 19. And people always... Yeah, exactly. Never had a legal drink club. And people always say, how do you get sober... Like, how do you even drink enough to know? Like, you know, how I've spilled more on my shirt than you've drank, yeah, whatever, all the uh-huh. things, right? And and what I always tell people is, do you know how bad things have to get to want to get sober at 19? Like, they have to get so fucking bad because you want to stop drinking at 19. So that's how bad things get. So anyway, I wanted to pull that progression because people may be thinking like, what does an 18-year-old know about wanting to get sober? 
Yeah. And that is absolutely my experience. So bad, so fast. It was like the moment I got to high school, it was really apparent that the way that I drank was not like my peers. Every single time I drank, it was to blackout, to throw up and just really couldn't stop myself. Not even an issue of tolerance. Like Once I started drinking, I just could not stop until my body physically told me it couldn't have anymore because I liked how it felt that much. And just so much risk-taking behavior too. Like it wasn't just the drinking, it was all the unprotected sex and the bulimia and putting myself in horribly risky situations with people that I didn't know in cars with people who I didn't know where I was going or what I was doing in random places. So just all this really, really risky behavior along with the drinking and drugs. By the time I was 14, I, I got me and 12 friends arrested from a party that I threw. That was like the first time I got in really serious trouble. I passed out on the bathroom floor at my own party because that was what I did. And I woke up and there was eight cops in my living room and 12 of my friends sitting on the couch. And I was like, oh, this is bad. Yeah. I know that moment so well. Like you come to and you look and you're like, "Mm, nope, nothing's coming to me. I have no plans. I have no ideas. I have no solutions. I just know this is real bad. Yeah. We are fucked. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I give up. I love that you brought up the risk-taking behavior, especially as a teenage girl, because I like it kind of makes me... And I don't... My using like... I mean, I would like to say a lot of it makes me like, oh, I think about it. It makes me nauseous to think I would put a needle in my arm or whatever. That's just not true. Like, I don't think that. (laughs) I'm not saying I want to do it. It just... It's not like I'm not like horrified. But when I think about some of the situations that I put myself in as a teenage girl, I literally, because I have kids and because I have perspective, it's unthinkable. It's unthinkable that we made it through. And I know every teenage girl that drank and used like I did and like you did has that same story of just like being in the back of a car, the driver's drunk, they're going 80 and you have no idea where you're going. And you're like, well, I guess I'm going to die tonight. Yeah, but not even, right? Like, because that was what it was for me. It was like, I am absolutely invincible. How could anything bad happen? And like, that's even scarier to me at some points. You just didn't, it didn't occur to you or you just didn't think like it just, it just, I just thought it would be okay. Every single time, right. I still would come to was relatively okay most of the time and would make it home eventually. And so part of me was just like, I can keep this going. Nothing really, really bad will happen. How did that turn out? Really, really bad. I mean, it got, it went downhill from there. I don't want to like, not to just totally jump around, but I did along the way, see a lot of therapists because I knew that what was happening was a problem and other people around me identified that what was happening was a problem. So I was always to some extent seeing a therapist. And I remember sitting in one therapist's office and he said, you're going to be really lucky to live to 21 and having the thought like, oh, fuck, I don't want to live until I'm 21. That's so old. (laughs) That's... Oh my God. I so relate to that. So fucking relate to that. Oh man. When I remember my 21st birthday being like, dude, I made it. <laughs> I did it. You're like, who knew? Oh man. Did you say that out loud or did you just think it? Oh no, I said that out loud to him. Yeah. yeah. I was yeah. like, I don't yeah. want to live to 21. Oh, like I can't keep doing this that long. 
So you're seeing all these therapists. So everybody knows this is a problem. You know, it's a problem. When does, you know, the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change? Yeah, there were two moments. The first was after I had just started doing coke and I was 16. And at the time I had a boyfriend who had actually been to rehab and was sober. And he was really worried about me. He was only like 17, but he'd already been to rehab. He had a really good picker. Oh yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) For sure. And he said, well, I was like high on coke on his couch and shaking coming down. And he said, will you go to an AA meeting with me in the morning? And for whatever reason, I said, fine. I think just to like get him to shut up. And I woke up the next morning super hungover. And for whatever reason, I I got on the subway and I went to the AA meeting with him. And I was like, this is great. Like I relate to all these people and they're so nice. The only part that I can't do is just the not drinking part. So (laughs) not going to come back here again. (laughs) (laughs) So bye. But so that was the first moment. And then the second big moment, you know, so went to school in New York City and then decided at some point that I needed to go to boarding school, that not being in New York City would make it better and that I'd be so afraid of getting kicked out that I wouldn't drink at school. Didn't really drink at school. I was very afraid of getting kicked out, but I did come home every weekend and the partying was like way worse. I was going back to school and going through withdrawal for like the first two days back that I would get home after a weekend every week and spending the first two days like in the infirmary shaking and vomiting and like, you know, fully having withdrawal. And a nurse, Miss Keys, sat on the end of my bed and she was like, I don't know what's going on with you or who doesn't see you, but I see that something's wrong and you don't have to tell me, but I think you should go home. And I was like, yeah. That's true. And I didn't tell her. I didn't say like, yeah, I'm doing a bunch of drugs and drinking all the time. But like, it it really struck me that like this person actually cares enough to see what's happening and see that there's a bad problem that needs addressing. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful that she said that and the way she said that and very unassuming and the type of conversation that sticks in our minds because it's not what everybody else is saying. Yeah, completely. There wasn't um, like shaming in it or uh, so much fear. It was just really compassionate. Yeah. Yeah. How did you get to rehab? How did how did you get to the point where, okay, enough is enough? Yeah. So I wish I could say that that was the end of it. I was back in New York and then I was just on medical leave from school and the partying was even worse. Like as much as I was kind of seeing therapists and like trying to get sober, I wasn't. And I had this night with my best friend. She's kind of like my sister, grown up with her. And we were on like the roof at my mom's apartment and I had a six pack of beer and I was really, really drunk. And she, and I was talking about wanting to die. You know, like I just hate myself so much. There's nothing I can do that's good enough. I was filled with shame by that point too, by about all the things that I was doing. And she was like, well, you're talking about wanting to die. Like, I'm going to take this beer away from you because I'm really afraid you're going to hurt yourself. And um, this is a story that's really hard for me to share, but I'm going to share it because it's real. And I said, if you take that beer away from me, I'm going to burn you with a cigarette. And I'd never physically hurt anybody. And she said, I'm going to take the beer away from you because I'm really that scared that you're going to do something that I can't stop you from doing. And I took the cigarette and I put it out on her wrist. And I woke up the next morning and she was gone. And I kind of was like prepared to pretend like the whole thing had never happened. And she sent my parents this letter saying, I'm really, really worried about Elizabeth. And I think that she needs help and telling them what happened. Well, yeah, yeah, that's intense. And I have stories like that where we just, we do things. It's like, it's desperation. 
It was. And I think it was such a cry for help too. And when my dad came out to me and he's like, I just got this letter from Eve. Like, what, what is this? I wasn't mad at her. Like, I remember her calling me and the first thing she said was, please don't hate me. And I was like, I don't hate you. I love you. Like, you you know that I need help. Like, you care about me enough to see how badly I'm struggling. And my dad said, the only option I see for you is going to rehab. And truly in that moment, I was like, I can't do that. I cannot, I cannot live without drugs and alcohol. I am filled with so much self-hatred, so much anxiety, so much shame that the idea of not having any way to cope with that is worse than death. And so I went and I took a bottle of pills and I was like, I'm going to die. That's going to be better than going to rehab. Yeah. I mean, that that's how intense it is. It's like we would rather, I don't know, I like, I couldn't think of living at the end. I couldn't live with it and I couldn't live without it. And that's the worst feeling because there's just nowhere to go. Exactly. And you feel completely trapped. Yeah. I can't do life without this thing. So you were unsuccessful. Thank God. Yeah, I did. So I like, it was all very dramatic, right? Like I laid down to die on my, on my brother's bed, who at the time was two years old. And I literally had the thought like, oh my God, my brother's going to come home from preschool and like find his sister dead in his bed. Like, I can't do that. That's insane. And so I went out to my dad and I was like, "Uh, we need to go to the hospital. I took a bottle of pills and he drove me to the hospital. And I remember, I do remember like sort of coming to in the hospital, I had a seizure and they were like, what did you do? And I was like, I took a bottle of pills. And they were like, like, why? And I was like, I wanted to die. And they're like, do you still want to die? And I was like, fuck yes. I'm, I just woke up in a hospital. Yeah. Like, Actually, the feeling has intensified since being in this room. <laughs> yeah, no, I really wish I was dead. That wasn't the answer because then I got put on suicide watch. Yeah, yeah, but... yeah. I was going to say 5150 immediately. immediately. Um, I didn't know at the time that was going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Did you have to get your stomach pumped? I didn't. I had a seizure and I had a couple of seizures actually, but I did have to have like like heart monitor things all over me for the whole time. And I was put in the ICU too, which was a very lonely experience after having just tried to kill myself. But I did. That's like after that initial, yes, I'd still really like to be dead. When I was a little bit more clear headed, I was like, oh yeah, okay, let's go to rehab. Like that's a, that's a much better idea than, than yeah. this. <laughs> I have to say though, there was so much of it that was like, I needed to do this in order to force myself to get sober. This was me forcing my own hand in a way. Yes. Yes. So you go to California to get sober as many of many people do. Did you find the experience to be helpful in starting your recovery? I think the most helpful piece was having a community, was walking into a room and having all these people be like, I've done that. I've done that worse. Like, you know, it was the breaking down of shame was really what it was because I was so filled with shame and so afraid to tell anyone the things that I'd been doing. And then to have people be like, I've done that. Like, don't worry, was really a profound experience. So that the first, really that first bit of my recovery was all about building community And I did. I went to tons of AA meetings. I went to like, you know, a meeting every day and was super into all the sober young people events. But I was 100% acting like myself drunk, just without the drugs and alcohol. Like no growth (laughs) happened in that first year. I feel like getting sober young, there's a part of it that is like my 20s. There was a lot of partying without drugs and alcohol. And that's what I needed. 
Yeah, I was, that's literally in my notes. Like I took some notes of things that I wanted to say. I absolutely needed it too. Like I needed to know that you can still have fun and still party while being sober, or there's no way that at 18, I would have stayed. Like not a chance. The problem was I got to the end of the year and I was like, I still feel fucking miserable. My heart still hurts. I still hate myself. And why am I here doing this if I still feel anxious and filled with this inadequate feeling all the time? Like I need something else that's going to actually make me feel better. What was that something else for you? Meditation. Yeah. So how, how did you find that? Yeah. So the first time I went to a meditation group, my therapist in rehab had recommended it, but it took me a while to go. And I went and I showed up like a little bit late and I came in halfway and the talk was all about non-harming. And I'm just, this is a snippet of what, of what it sounded like in that room. So I never kill flies because I understand that flies' lives matter just as much as mine do. But I really struggle when I see a coworker kill a fly. And I'm just wondering, what should I do about that? And I was like, oh <laughs> my God, <laughs> like what? alternate reality did I just wander into? It's funny, like now I have such a different perspective on it and I actually don't kill bugs ever anymore. But at the time I was like, this is a bunch of crazy fucking hippies and not for me. And so I raised my hand and I was like, I get that. Like we don't want to kill bugs. That's super cool. But like at some point, isn't a fly just a fly? And the teacher was like, that belief is rooted in ignorance and delusion. And I was like, he just called me ignorant and delusional. Like I am out of here and never coming back. Those words have like very specific meanings. And there's, there's like whole context to that word choice that I knew nothing of. And so I walked out and was like, okay, well, it's not going to be meditation. That's clearly not the thing. That's a bunch of hippie bullshit. And it took like six months before I, before I was willing to readdress meditation. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hello, beautiful people. If you've been listening to the show for any amount of time, you've realized a critical feature in every story is finding a community of supportive people. That community takes many shapes and there is no one size fits all approach. That's where lionrock.life comes in. We host 70 plus meetings a week on a topic that likely matters to you. Those community meetings include things like grief, anger, parenting and recovery, meditation, nutrition, navigating relationships and recovery, and so much more. I think you'll really love it. And I want to give you a chance to try it for free for one month. Go to lionrock.life or download the lionrock.life app, sign up and use promo code courage at checkout for one month free. All the support group meetings you want for one month free. Check it out. Worst case scenario is you meet some great supportive people and you go on your merry way. Okay, back to the show. Meditation for a lot of people feels really inaccessible. And it also, I think it feels like there's no way I could possibly do that. Or how is that possibly going to help? You you literally had that experience of walking in going, this is just a whole bunch of bullshit. I'm not, not doing this and coming back. And since then, it's been life-changing for you. For so many people who are like, they dabble, right? And they're like, mm, it doesn't really... What is for your experience? How did you get from this is hippie bullshit to like, <laughs> this is like a primary core part of my existence? Honest answer, my husband. <laughs> 
<laughs> who at the time okay, so was not my husband. husband. So okay, find so. a boyfriend who's yeah, yeah, in yeah. meditation and he's like okay. a California hippie who wears tie dyes and beanies. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And then that's what gets you into it. Got it. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. I met, I met my then boyfriend outside an AA meeting and he was super into meditation and kind of had like kept nagging me to go to meditation groups with him. And I liked him so much and thought he was so cool. I was like, okay, fine. <laughs> like, let's try it again. And the more I went back, the more I started to like it. But it wasn't until I kind of like, it feels like I jumped headfirst in a little bit. He said, let's go to this like day long meditation retreat together. And it'll, it's amazing. It'll be like eight hours at this meditation center and all day there. And I was like, okay, all right, I guess. Like, let's try it. But while I was there, it was a, the retreat was focused on loving kindness or unconditional friendliness. And it was all about how to actually care for yourself and treat yourself like a friend. And that to me was what completely hooked me into meditation. It was that particular set of practices that was so incredibly earth shattering to feel for the first time like, oh, maybe I could like myself. There's a possibility that I could move towards liking myself. And that was when I was like, I can do this meditation thing. I can stick with this. It has value. What about the meditation? Like, why couldn't that have been a book or something you listened to, a podcast or a reading? Or what was it about the fact that that meditation retreat, that scenario, like why meditation? Yeah. Great question. I honestly think it was the teacher, Spring Wisham. She's wonderful. And I've been on other retreats with her since. And she's written books. They're very good. And she was so honest and talked about the same feelings that I had. And to hear another woman talking about struggling with that same inadequacy and same fear and anxiety, and then to hear her journey of how it shifted for her through meditation, that was really to me what it was. And maybe I could have had that in a book too, but to have to be in that meditation retreat center with her telling these stories and sharing the practices for eight hours was such an all-encompassing experience that it was really profound. How is her sharing that story coupled with sitting quietly, thinking, trying to watch your thoughts, observe your thoughts? How is the coupling of those two things so powerful. And, you know, and we're talking about like explaining something for people who don't like when you try to talk about a meditation for people who don't know about meditation or understand, like I can feel her sharing as being, you know, either in a therapy session or in a group session or in a support group and identifying, I can feel that as something that's really moving, but there's a piece of this that's coupling it with the sitting with, you know, observing your thoughts, like with the actual practice of what you physically do. How is the coupling of those two things so life-changing? Yeah. And I think like I'll get particular. This particular type of meditation is is really focused on repeating phrases. So she's telling these stories, right? And then asking you to sit and close your eyes and repeat these phrases to yourself like, may I be happy? May I be safe? May I be at ease? And then giving you this encouragement to also use your own phrases that might resonate with you. And ones that I used early on are, may I be cared for? May I be loved? Those things that I a bit always felt were missing. And so this invitation from her 
really telling her story. And then to sit there quietly with your eyes closed, focusing on yourself and to actually say these things, may I be cared for over and over and over 20 minutes, 30 minutes. It was something I'd never done before. I had never intentionally sat in a place and said kind things to myself. That was not an experience I had any context for. So from that moment, I really did dive into meditation and I got a meditation teacher and she was amazing. Joanna Hardy, also go find her meditations and stuff. And I worked one-on-one with her and it's sort of like a therapist relationship where she was like coaching me about meditation. And I think it's no surprise that like these sort of mentors or people I ended up looking up to were women who had had really similar struggles and then come to this place of so much empowerment and self-love. I'm like, that was really what I needed and the messages that I needed. So, you know, I'm going to like weekly meditation groups multiple times a week and going to meeting with my meditation teacher and decided I was in school for psychology and I really wanted to do a PhD in person perception. It's a whole other tangent I won't go on to. It's very interesting. I still one day might like to do that, but I started leading meditation groups at treatment centers because I was like, okay, like now I kind of know how to do this. I could lead these for other people, I guess. And like the opportunity sort of fell into my lap and it was decent money. And I was like, okay, like I can meditate. Maybe I can help newly sober people meditate. And that was what got me interested in becoming a therapist. Because I was like, I love this. I love leading the meditation groups with newly sober people. It was a lot of inpatient and outpatient and sober living environments. I was doing these groups at and yeah, decided to become a therapist and one that focused on, on that in particular, like how do you start loving yourself in recovery? Like how do you deal with the anxiety and shame in recovery with through meditation and through mindfulness? So definitely a shared journey with me and my, and my husband, Matt. So did that for a while and then went to decided to go to grad school so they could actually do some clinical work. You went to grad school in, in the Bay Area? I did, yes. Yeah. So we'd been living in LA and I did my undergrad there. And that was where we'd been doing all the stuff and just thought we wanted to settle in the Bay Area because that's where he's from. So decided to do my master's in clinical mental health counseling, which is such a mouthful, and continue doing... I continued leading those meditation groups. We actually even opened a meditation center. We had this awesome meditation center in Petaluma for a few years. My husband is also a meditation teacher. That is his training and certification. So like that's what he was doing too. And it was what our recovery was about. Had this great meditation center. And then we had this realization at some point, why are we working 80 hours a week? Like, and we're in debt. And he really had this feeling of like, I can't do this anymore. Like I didn't get sober and build this life to just work all the time. That sounds terrible to me. And I don't think I'm actually happy like this. And part of me was like, we're just getting through. Like once I'm done with grad school, like then I'll be able to see clients and then it'll be okay. And like we can just like keep pushing through this. But it was actually that pausing to recognize we wait, we don't have to do it like this. Like we've spent all this time in meditation and trying to focus on ourselves and loving ourselves. And we hate a whole part of our lives because we have to work so much. And he was like, let's move. Like that's the only way that I see that we can really live the life we want to live is if we're not living in the Bay Area. And it kind of snowballed. And we were both like, well, if we're going to move, like let's really move. I was like, well, if you're making me move, we're moving to the beach. Right. 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 Let's be clear here. And we literally looked up a list of best places for expats to live and Playa del Carmen was at the top of the list. And so we booked a trip to Mexico to see if we liked it. And what was that like? 
And we came and we really liked it. This was a super cool city and we could live here. How has living in Mexico changed your recovery? It's changed my recovery in that I haven't been to an in-person meeting since I moved here. So that's definitely like one of the biggest changes. And I have a lot of friends who don't drink or do drugs, but are not in recovery. And that's been a really big change too. Like people who have, who probably, you know, had a substance use disorder, honestly, but didn't use AA to get sober. And that's, that's really been eye-opening that Sometimes that world can get a little small, like this is the only way. And to sort of like have my mind blown a little bit open of like, there's so many ways to do this and so many wonderful people to meet who are on a similar path of self-growth. It just doesn't look this very one particular way that, you know, my husband and I both do it. Like you go to rehab, you go to AA, you go to meetings. And so that's really been the, the biggest change that I've seen since I moved here. You had both your kids there, right? Yeah, they're both both born here. And so... How for me, I like to call it my postpartum recovery, like getting sober young. And I was very grateful to be able to have that time to do all those things. Very like got very into self-care and figured out how to how to be sober. And then the kids came and I was like, oh shit, like this is not like I had to rework it all. What has that experience been like for you? Yeah, the same. Ditto. <laughs> I remember when I was pregnant with my first one, Eli, I meditated every day and did loving kindness meditation for him and for myself and for my husband, like literally every day of my pregnancy. And then when I got pregnant with the second one, I was like, I can't do that. I'm for that every day. But like, I still try to maintain it, right? And I make certain things a priority. But yeah, it just, it like, you know, having kids blows the roof off the house. Like everything changes. And the biggest shift for me has been really seeing other parts of life as recovery and meditation. Like being able to see the walk that I'm taking with them in the stroller as time to meditate and being able to see taking time at the beach as time to meditate. And really like that focus on leaving my phone when I'm with them, you know, like leaving it across the room or out of their rooms. I never bring it into the room for bedtime ever as time that's really present focused and also rooted in that practice of so much loving care for them, loving kindness. So I feel like my whole time in recovery, whole time meditation teachers kept telling me like, life is meditation, life is mindfulness. And I was like, yes, 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 I get it. But like also meditation really is just what you do when you sit and you close your eyes, right? <laughs> and then I had kids and I was like, I get it now. Everything is meditation because it has to be. I know. I feel like we have to be beaten into submission. We're like, fine, 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 fine. So you work have worked in a lot of different treatment centers, a lot of outpatients with people who are struggling with substance use disorders. What are some of the top struggles as a therapist that you see people dealing with when they're first getting sober? I would say, well, it's a little bit self-selecting too because of who I tend to work with. It's absolutely the shame and self-hatred I see as a huge problem. And especially people with families too, right? So much shame about what they've done to their families. Certainly among young women, so much shame, particularly about like risky sexual behavior. So, so, so much shame. Anxiety, a ton of anxiety as being a real hindrance to to getting sober because when there's so much anxiety and the only thing that you were treating that with is alcohol or drugs, it is really hard to take that away from somebody. With the young women and the, what people have done to their families, that's a really good one. What do you tell people when you're talking, You know, and obviously it's not one thing, but when you listen to, let's just have a vignette here of a young woman who has two kids and is getting sober and she's put 
her husband and her kids through the ringer and is, you know, stop drinking. Oh my God, there's all this guilt. Everybody's angry. I've let, whatever the scenario is. What are you telling them? Because in some ways, their guilt and shame is reasonable. And in other ways, it's incredibly harmful and overdone. So, like, what are some of the ways that you've helped people work through that type of scenario? Yeah, it's, it really is, you know, the core of what I'm saying is you are worthy of forgiveness. And even if you never get sober, you are still worthy of forgiveness. Because beating yourself up for it and hating yourself for it is never going to make it better. You can forgive yourself at the core of who you are, even if some of the actions that you've done are unforgivable, right? Like, okay, so maybe we can say it is unforgivable to drive your kids drunk. Fine. We don't have to forgive that action. But you, the person, what got you there? You're forgivable. To meet them, like to me, it's just, it is really about meeting people with compassion. I don't think anybody needs, it's so rare that I meet somebody who's not taking enough accountability. Usually they're just beating the crap out of themselves. Interesting. You think that, so it's it's rare that you see someone who doesn't see damage they've done or or things like that. Interesting. I really believe that. And when someone is minimizing it or downplaying it, it's usually because they're too afraid. Like it's so painful and so shameful for them to feel. And so if you can break down the shame and the pain and get to the forgiveness, you're going to get to them taking accountability anyway. How do you help them talk to their kids about addiction? Honestly, and kid-led, right? So like when kids are asking questions to answer them honestly and not give too many superfluous details because that's not usually helpful. But to be honest, to be honest and candid and straightforward and lots of emotional education too, right? Like to talk to kids about recovery is to talk to them about emotions and feelings and give them a context for coping with their emotions too. I have a friend who is sober 17 years and his kids would always ask him where he was going when he would go to his meetings. And so he, you know, gets down on his knee and says, you know, guys, and you know, I, I'm an alcoholic and, and I need to go to these meetings and this is what I do. And it's to take care of my recovery. And well, well <laughs> the next day at school, the kids are telling everybody my daddy's an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so funny. I was like, maybe person in long-term recovery <laughs> works better. Yeah, exactly. Whoopsie. But yeah, I think, you know, it's it's interesting how it comes up and or, or how it won't come up. My kids, we were sitting on the beach and they're five now. This happened probably four. We're sitting on the beach and one of those planes goes, planes with the um, advertisement goes by and it's for some, some alcohol. And my son asked me, what is that? I say, that's a grown-up drink. And then he says, do you drink the grown-up drink? And I'm like, oh my God, we're here. Like, who knew? I was just... So you know, nuts, right? Yeah, I was like, oh, actually, your daddy and I don't drink the grown-up drink. And I'm waiting for the next thing. And that's all he asked, you know? And it's... it's. I was thinking like, okay, so is that, you know... Because it's really hard to know how to talk to your kids about this stuff. And I'm sober. So it's not that big of a deal in terms of, of like what the confusion is. It's not... They don't really have context for it. I can only imagine you have a lot of circumstances where you're coaching people through conversations with their kids to try to bring some explanation to their pain. Absolutely. And and a lot of the people that I work with have kids who are a, a, a little bit older too. So, so much of it is like, make space for their feelings. Like allow them to have whatever emotional experience that they need to have. It's okay for someone to be mad at you. It's uncomfortable. It feels shitty, but it's going to be okay. Like your kid's allowed to be mad at you. So 
when a kid is mad at you and you're talking these situations, do you coach people to say like, I understand that you're mad at me? Like, is that how you coach them? Yeah. Yeah. And um, curiosity, right? So like, what's going on for you right now? I I think that you're mad at me. What's going on for you right now? Like nine times out of 10, the kids are like, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> like, generally, that's how that goes. And then what do you do if they don't want to talk about it? Let them not talk about it. Say like, okay, I'm here for you when everyone has a conversation and you check in with them. But the truth is, if you're meeting someone with curiosity and they say no, you got to respect the no. Do you have thoughts on how you see discussing this stuff with your kids? I know they're very, very, very little. Yeah, it's so it is a discussion that my husband and I have, and and he copes with depression as well. And so, like, how do we talk to them about that? And those conversations have already happened because, like, my two and a half year old can understand when his dad is different and like is way more low energy. And so we just explain what's going on. And I think that with recovery, drinking, drugs, and alcohol, whatever, it'll be very much the same. Like as it comes up, to just say this is what it is and. I think it really helps that neither of us us carry much shame about it anymore because it doesn't feel like this big thing to have to like tell them or disclose. I, I think it, it's just a part that will be integrated into their lives in a pretty seamless way. We've got a lot of people in their lives who are in recovery too. A lot of our family is in recovery. Is that new? Some, yes. I like don't I won't share any particular people because I feel like that's theirs to share, but like the longest one over 15, 18 years, maybe. Oh wow. Uh, and yeah. and the newest one coming up on two years. So yeah, they've got like a whole range of people in their immediate family. Do you find that people seek you out for you know, when people know that you're in recovery, that they seek you out or you, you hear from people you haven't heard from in a long time because they find out that you're in recovery or you're a therapist and, and they need help? Oh yeah. Every constantly. Yeah. And it's and it's flattering. It's still flattering. But yes, I get those messages all the time from family members, from old friends. Like, do you have any resources? How do you get someone started on this journey? And it's something I'm always happy to help with because I think that the first step is really hard. And I will say this, and this is not like a shameless plug. This is the actual truth, what I really, really feel. I have worked at a lot of inpatient and outpatient programs. And I think as far as programs go, Lion Rock is the best one that I've worked at. And I recommend everyone to Lion Rock. I really do. That's where I refer people to. Mm, Well, thank you. I mean Uh, it. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I swear I didn't pay her to say that. (laughs) I was talking recently about how you know if you're addicted to something. I put out a video about that and I won't disclose what my first steps were because I don't want to influence. But in in that video, I said what I believe the first step would be if you are starting to think that you are addicted to something. What would the first or first and second step be that you give to people who think they may have an addiction? I reach out to somebody. That's my first step. If you think that you have a problem with addiction, reach out to somebody. And if it's not a therapist, then a really trusted friend or mentor and and get some feedback, get somebody to bounce that idea off of. You do not need to do that alone. It's an incredibly isolating experience to be in addiction. Um, so the first step to me is reach out to someone for support. So reach out to someone. Would you say like, try to find someone who's in recovery, try to find a professional, or you're just like anyone that you're willing to reach out to? Don't let anything get in the way of you reaching out to somebody who you think would be helpful. Yeah, I think it's best to reach out to a therapist or someone who's going to have professional knowledge. But if you're like, if that feels out of the realm of possibility for you or you don't know how to do that, like reach out to a person who you really trust and admire in your life. 
Yes, agreed. Mine was to, if you think that you have an addiction to start, and I I said the same thing. I was like, I know this sounds self-serving, but to start listening to podcasts, to look up meetings, see and see if you can relate, like do the fact finding, see if it feels like if you can relate and then reach out to somebody. Because sometimes it's you think, oh yeah. And then that confirmation from hearing stories of other people that you relate to is so powerful. Absolutely. I've, that I think is a profound moment for so many people is realizing, oh, other people feel that way too. <laughs> and it's scary because it's like, fuck, that means I have this thing. But it's also so comforting. <laughs> what would you have... If you could go back and tell your 18-year-old getting sober self who's coming to California and terrified of what the future has to hold, you could go back and tell her something, what would it be? I love you and it's going to be okay. Perfect. So where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you and learn more about what you do and other resources with regard to therapy and meditation? Yes, you can find me at onemindtherapy.com. And uh, there's some meditations on my website, some resources. You can get in touch with me there. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Thank you for having me. This has been great. Well, hello, friends. That was amazing. Was it not? Scott, what'd you think? Very, very amazing. I feel at peace. You know, I feel like I I need to move to Mexico. So Elizabeth and I have talked as a part of this conversation, you know, like I sometimes talk to folks ahead of time and, and there was literally like tropical birds in the background when we were talking and I was like, are there tropical birds in the background? And she's like, yes, I'm in paradise in Mexico basically. And I was like, oh, okay. So I guess we'll be heading down there soon. And whenever you're ready for us, you know, we don't have, We'll, we'll live next door. We're not going to impose, but seems like a pretty good spot. So uh, it seems amazing. And I really want to. And my husband refuses to even toy with the idea. But in my head, we're going. Well, listen, the cartels control that town. So that means that it's safe, I'm, right? I'm, you know? Yes. I'm not scared of no cartel. <laughs> okay. That's a lie. I'm very scared of the cartels. Yes. I think rightfully so. My husband goes, my husband goes, oh, you want to move to a place where the only people allowed to have guns are the cartels, the Mexican cartels. And I was like, yes. <laughs> I was like, you need to ignore that part. <laughs> you know, every place you live has quirks. Exactly. No. We lived in Los Angeles. Look at that place. No perfect place. No perfect place. Whenever I talk to people though that are are deep meditation practitioners though, like don't you just get this like I couldn't flap you if I tried type situation, right? Unflappable, unflappable people. Yeah, or their flap would have to be, you know, something serious because they're pretty <laughs> they're pretty zen. Maybe that's our our hint. Yeah, I guess so. I guess what it's what we're saying is that there's something to this, apparently. It's only been happening for thousands of years, but yeah. you know. What more proof do we need, I guess, is what we're saying. They they hook people up to all kinds of medical equipment. I mean, they've done, yeah, they've done studies that show it changes your brain and we're still like, but does it? But sometimes I don't like sitting still. I don't know. I can't quiet my head and it's hard. I have to remember to do it. And I'd rather watch a TikTok video. Oh, God. It's 
just, I swear, the phone, you guys, is such a disaster. A hundred percent. I'm with you. Just sucks you in, chews you up and spits you out with <laughs> DIY ideas <laughs> and no actual skills or miter saws to make them happen. The number of videos I have saved that are like, check out this quick carpentry hack. You put tape here and then you do this with a pen and boom, shakalaka. And I'm like, I need this. I've never used it. <laughs> I will save like cat houses or like circus, whatever. And I don't own a cat. <laughs> okay. So it's you never just, know. You never know. But that's what I'm saying. It's got to be prepared. Like, these sexy ass chicken poops. <laughs> yeah. I said what I said. Those chicken poops. <laughs> I just look at those chicken coops and I know that some handy married stable man put those pieces <laughs> of wood together. And he said, I am going to contribute to the chickens laying eggs. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. We have precious. <laughs> oh God. Uh, oh man. But Elizabeth. She's amazing. I want her to be my therapist oh, and, I know. and my She's meditation an teacher. She's incredible therapist too. You can tell. You can yeah, just she tell. Is. She is. At Line Rock, her clients have stayed the longest. They had the best attendance. We had her teaching classes on on how to keep your clients engaged in group because her she had such great attendance. People always wanted to go. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. She's just really... There's, there's some people, I think with therapists too, my experience having hired hundreds of them now, there's some people who are just naturals at it and it's hard to teach that. We're basically telling you just exclusively go to Elizabeth and uh, that's it. Yeah. That was solved. like a really long way of saying that. Solved. <laughs> solved. I also just really appreciated the reality that she kind of speaks to where it's like, I think again, sometimes I, this is my own personal biases that I'm putting out there, which Ooh, is that sometimes, uh, yeah, multiple. Did you see how I did that? Uh, yeah, yeah. That hardcore uh, meditation practitioners sometimes too, I envision them that they're in this like cone of silence and hers is like, look, I've got kids. So I have had to change my practice. I've had to say, this isn't going to work anymore. I've, I've had to say, this is good enough. You know, those sorts of things. Again, the, the realness is always the way to my heart and getting me convinced that I need to jump on the meditation bandwagon for sure. I've tried. I've done it. But when I've had some consistency with it, I've had really great experiences. It's so easy for me to disconnect and then trying to get back to that. It's like with any, I mean, it's like with anything where you have this, like I've had this period of like, wow, I'm really like feeling a difference. And then I stop and then I start again. I'm like, nope, all the progress is gone. Back to square one. I don't want to fucking put all the work in. And like, you mean I have to sit still? That's the answer. I mean, that's just this, I, honestly, though, honestly, if, if can we be honest, that's the fucking worst answer ever. Yeah. Just sit still. Fuck you. <laughs> I have real problems. Just fucking sit still. And I'm like, how is that the answer? <laughs> makes me so angry. And then it is the answer. And then I'm looking at chicken coops and I'm getting old. And it's a problem. <laughs> you see where we're going? Yeah. I see where we're going. That's and good. you know where I'm going right now is for a second to talk about lionrock.life because. What do they have at lionrock.life, Ashley, that is very topical to what we're talking about right now? They have meditation meetings. They have meditation meetings. I was like, do they have a chicken coop? <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm like, damn. <laughs> they have chicken coop do meetings. They, do they have chicken coop planning building classes? Because 100%. 100%. Yes. Yeah. They have over 70 different types of support group meetings a week, including meditation ones, which is very helpful because then you have the accountability of having other people doing it with you. And if you're on camera and you're dicking around, well, theoretically, you have enough pro-social shame. You like that what I did there? <laughs> and uh, And so the shame, the pro-social shame gets you to focus on what you're doing because you care what other people think about you. And then you create the habit because you care what other people think about you. And then since you care what other people think about you, it becomes a helpful tool to meditate. Plus they have a scoreboard like at CrossFit and like the number of enlightenments that you hit. It's like it shows up on the board and stuff. And that's pretty fun to compete to be the best meditator that you can. (laughs) Nirvana. No, and by that, is... I mean, that's not the case. It's just a lovely setting with people yes. who really know what they're talking about and that can give you a little bit of like, let's, I've got some pals. Let's go do some meditation and let's, a little easier than me just sitting in my living room and being like, all right, it's meditation o'clock, Scott. Yeah. And they have other meetings too, depending on what kind of recovery you're in and all the meetings there, they consider your recovery, whatever you define it. So if you have a looser idea or version or you're not sure yet, you're welcome there. And they promote an environment that is a bit more fluid than some of the other programs. Totally. If you could use the promo code COURAGE for one month free, if you want to try out this or get into meditation or whatever other group is exactly what you want and need. Ashley, Loeb, Blasting Game, are you ready for the pain train? I am never, (laughs) ever going to be ready for the pain train, but... But it's uh, okay. But that's not what life's about. That's not what life's, life's about. about. Life's about showing up. So you gotta show I'm up showing even. up, not ready. <laughs> Here I is. Ashley, what does an angry pepper do? Oh no. Explode. It gets jalapeno face. Oh God. <laughs> oh God. I'm so glad that we have time in <laughs> jokes for me to recover because you guys it's a few day process i understand it doesn't you can't you can't you can't just come back from it overnight we're not expecting anyone to be able to just bounce back to normal life after these blows they take. <laughs> i need to play cards against humanity after hearing these jokes to cleanse my soul because somehow dad jokes are like just i don't i can't even say it on air well we are as always we're rooting for you this week we hope it's a, a great week for you and it all goes the way you hoped it does and if it doesn't then you know wait scott sorry <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> dear god Okay, before we go, I just also, I have a request. Please, please, please subscribe. And if you love our podcast, give us a five-star rating and a review. This is our currency. This helps us. This helps our SEO. It helps other people be able to find us and use us as a tool for recovery. We very much appreciate it. And it is really, really helpful for helping get in front of other people. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. 
Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.